Earth, Wind and Fire there with Star. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. I am honoured to have Anna Piper-Scott in the studio to talk about Tea for Tea, a transgender showcase happening at the Pride Centre uh, for Pride Month on the uh, June 8 to 10. Uh, welcome to the show, Anna. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Tell us all about the show. Uh, so we've been doing it uh, a couple of times. We did a Melbourne Fringe. We did it at the TOF, but it's basically an all-trans showcase for an all-trans audience. And we specifically tell cisgender people not to come. So it's a very exclusive event just for trans and non-binary people uh, to perform for their own community without uh, having to cater to cis people and uh, cis people's needs. Yeah, I mean, as a comedian, you must have encountered some experiences where you thought, gee, I just want this to be a a gender-diverse kind of, you know, environment only, a trans-only environment. Is that what happened? Like, tell us the backstory. Yeah, so I was doing just regular stand-up gigs and I just was finding that I was losing time to explaining stuff for the cis people in the room. So I would stop and say something about cisgender people and then I'd have to explain to cisgender people what the word cisgender means, you know? And then if I say something about, like, AFAB or non-binary and then I have to define these terms just because most people in the, the broader community aren't across that, they haven't done their homework, they haven't done the Trans 101 course and they're not familiar. And I'm just like... I felt like I was performing with, like, one arm tied behind my back. So I was like, well, if the whole audience was trans and I didn't have to stop and explain stuff and then I could maybe get into some, like, really interesting stuff rather than just explaining basic definitions. And I'm like, well, if that's what it's like for me, it must be like that for drag performers and burlesque performers and poets and what have you, like any other kind of trans performer, just performing with one arm tied behind their back. I'm like, let's just unleash them and see what they can do when they're only performing for people who get it. A trans-only audience, how fun. Yeah. And it's been electric. It's been incredible. Uh, I just was doing it as a little bit of a a gag, almost, you know, just a little fun experiment. But it's been absolutely astounding. Every single time we've done the show, we've had people doing something that, that, that you'll never see again, like one-time-only stuff. Like we had a, a trans comedian, Eddie Patterson, who was doing uh, jokes about, they were, they were worried about going on testosterone and losing their hair, and they were doing a bunch of jokes about that whilst having their head shaved by their partner, you know? So doing jokes about hair loss whilst losing their hair, and then you're like, that's a one-night-only, like you can't do that again. Like you can't shave your head every time you do the set. So we've had people do uh, tributes to their top surgery, uh, so we've had uh, Winter Green did uh, their first ever act since getting top surgery and they did a fan dance tribute to it. We had uh, another performer, Maxectomy, do their last ever performance before getting top surgery and they did a kind of like a send-off to, to you know, their, their current body, to their, their new body. And it's just been it's been wild. Just every time we get something, we're like, we've never seen that before. We're never going to see it again. And just what these performers can do uh, in front of a cis audience is incredible. What they can do in front of a trans audience is just mind-blowing. It's spectacular. And it's just such an electric experience for everyone in the room. I love that word, electric. I mean, it just must be so invigorating for a trans audience to kind of be able to breathe and laugh. And it just must be kind of really liberating. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, a, a big piece of feedback we've gotten from a lot of audience members is that it's the first time, not that they've been in a room full of trans people, But normally when they're in a room full of trans people, it's a funeral or a protest or something sad or angry or whatever. Whereas in this room, you can just be trans and just be whatever. And you can be happy, you can be sad, you can be emotional, you can laugh, you can cry, you can do whatever you want. And you don't have to stress about whether or not you're doing it right and whether or not you're feeling the same emotion as everyone else. And it's just, it's yeah, it's really liberating. It's just, you know, when, when you're trans and you walk into a room your transness is always the most interesting part about you and it's what everyone sees ahead of everything else. But then when you go into this room where everyone is trans, suddenly every other part of your personality and your identity can come to the forefront. Like the fact that you're trans, the fact that you're on, you know, this hormone or that hormone or that you're using these pronouns that someone else doesn't use, whatever, that all becomes really boring. And all your hobbies and your interests and what you do for work and what you want to do and your dreams and ambitions, they suddenly get to be at the forefront and you get to be like a whole person rather than just a identity category. So it really taps into the fun side of being trans without the pressures that the cis world puts on the community. Like, as you say, you know, funerals, rallies, yeah. you know, peer support groups, whatever. It's the heavy stuff. You guys do the heavy lifting so often. And, you know, it's great to be just among peers and having fun. 
Well, I mean, it's it's, it's not necessarily fun uh, right. all the time. Like sometimes it is people doing something that's sad or melancholy or, or bittersweet or, or whatever, but it, you're allowed to experience those emotions without worrying about how they be, be perceived. Because I think when you express being sad in relation to being trans, people take that as, oh, well, it's bad to be trans then, or it's depressing to be trans, or being trans is a tragedy. And it's like, these things can be all mixed up together. Like sometimes you can transition and have that be a beautiful part of yourself, but also there's a bit of grieving because there's a trade-off involved and you can sometimes like grieve things that you had access to that you don't have access to anymore. Um, we had uh, one performer at the most recent show. Uh, they had felt really sad when they transitioned because they were a singer and they suddenly couldn't sing all these songs that they used to be able to sing because they weren't in the right register. And they were at our show for the first time singing songs that they were now able to sing uh, with their like post-testosterone voice and embrace that. But it was still a bit, bittersweet you know and some of those songs that they were singing were not happy joyful party songs it was like mountain goats and it was a bit dark and a bit depressing but it's not about being one emotion or the other it's not about being happy or being sad it's about having all of your emotions uh explored and you know and that's the real exciting thing about the show for me because um I host the show and I've created the show uh with my producer Ollie but uh Ollie Lawrence and they book all the acts and are in charge of the running order and they know what everyone's going to go do on stage. But me as the host, I have no idea. So I'm there with the audience and I go on the same kind of emotional roller coaster that the audience goes on. And it's highs and it's lows and it's all different kinds of feelings and I don't know what I'm going to feel every night and the audience doesn't either, but I get to kind of like shepherd them through that and guide them through what they're feeling whilst I'm feeling it at the same time. And it's, it's really beautiful and it's just uh, really just expands my heart every time I get to do the show. It's it's really indescribable, but God, I'd love to see a video of it. But I mean, that's the the joy of it is that we do get a lot of cis people asking if they can come to the show, and it's just like I I can't tell you to I can't give you a yes on that, you know. Like we don't ever tell anyone that they can't come, but the method of the show is that we perform everyone in the lineup and me as the host. We perform as though everyone in the room is trans. And, like, we're not going to explain anything. We're just going to assume that you get it, that you've been around enough trans people, that we don't need to spoon feed you on anything. Um, and if you are you think you might get something out of that, then that's great. But we can't cater to you. It's just catering to trans people. And we've had some cis people come to the show and they've gone, oh, it's really illuminating to be in a room full of trans people and feel like I have to be in the closet about being cis. You know, that everyone around them has assumed that they're trans or non-binary, that if they said otherwise, that they might upset someone, that they might get kicked out and just kind of like they have an insight of what it's like to be in the closet uh, for an hour because they, they're not allowed to mention that they're cis without getting weird looks and without getting stares, without feeling like they've intruded on a space. And we also have cis people who've come to the show and realised that they aren't cis. Because I think that's also the thing is that sometimes you need to be in a queer space to realise that you're queer. And sometimes you need to be in a trans space to realise that you're trans. So it's been really, really fun to have people come to the show thinking it's not for them and realising that it's a lot more for them than they initially expected. Sounds like the hottest ticket in town. It really, it really is. It's just, and, and every time we do it, it's a different lineup. It's different performers. And even if it's a performer you've seen before, they're not necessarily doing the same act. Uh, like a lot of these kind of variety shows that you'll see around town will book specific acts from performers. So going, we want you to do this number that you always do or whatever. Whereas we just go, you're a great performer, do what you want, you know? Like as long as you don't burn the building down or create like a big mess that we have to deal with or whatever, like your time on stage is for you to do with as you please. So even if you're a comedian, you might want to come and sing something. Or if you're a singer, you might want to come do a spoken word piece or you might be a burlesque performer and you want to do something that's more like drag adjacent or whatever, you know, it's, it's, and some people do like a real blend of stuff where you're watching like, this is incredible. And I wouldn't know how to put it on another lineup or another show because it doesn't really fit into a box that's very neat and tidy. And that's, really like the trans experience in a yeah, nutshell is just yeah. not fitting perfectly into any of the assigned boxes and just having people where they come do something. We're like, that's an incredible performance. That's something I'm going to remember for the rest of my life. I don't know what to call it. The performers must love it. Yeah. It's, it's every performer who's done it 
is like right afterwards desperate to get back as soon as possible. Uh, every one of them seems surprised that they get paid for what happened because they feel like they got more out of the experience than anyone else. But that's a good vibe. Yeah, and just they're like, oh, that was incredible. That's mind blowing. Like, and here's where you invoice. And like, I get to invoice. I get paid. I'm like, yeah, no, no, no. We told you we were going to pay you. We're paying you. But they just, it's it just feels like a healing experience for everyone, you know, and just really gets to like open your mind about like what it means to be trans because we get a lot of people who come to the show who think of themselves as being trans but they're worried they're not trans enough because they haven't they've decided not to take those hormones or they decide not to have that surgery or they're still using the name they used before or they're maybe even using like some of the same pronouns they used before whatever and they're like I don't know I'm not trans enough and then they get to see someone on our stage who looks and sounds exactly like them and have a whole room of other trans people be like, you're amazing, incredibly like, okay, well, if they're trans enough, that means I'm trans enough. Like, if they belong here and they can be, like, highlighted on this stage, that means I get to be highlighted on this stage as well. And it's a real, like, I, I tell the audience, that, like, this stage is a mirror. Like, everything you're putting into this stage, all the love you're giving it, is love that you deserve and it's love that should be coming back to you as well. How do you feel when you get off that stage after all that spontaneity and positivity and it's, energy? It's uh, exhausting in a good way, you know? Like, I feel spent, but, like, the same way you would after maybe a marathon or a marathon session with a lover or something like that, where you're like, that took everything out of me and I would love to do it again, but also I need to sleep for a a decade, you know? And it's just a a mix of those feelings, but it's just just such a loving environment and it's just such a... I, I, I hesitate to say safe space because um, everyone talks about trans people as being fragile and easily triggered and easily offended and everything like that. And I've said before during the show that, like, it's a trans space. It's not a safe space. You know, like, we might be edgy. We might be political. We might be aggressive or confrontational or say some stuff that's offensive. But it's going to be offensive stuff from a trans perspective rather than offensive stuff from J.K. Rowling. Yeah, absolutely. You know, who wants to be defined by a trigger warning constantly? You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. I just, we, we just, it's just also just a ridiculous idea to think of trans people as being fragile. It's just like we're, you know, facing potential genocide in a lot of places at the moment. Well, look at the US. Yeah. Like they're trying to pass laws to legislate us out of existence. And we're coming back with smiles and love and jokes and incredible amounts of empathy and all these things that these people who hate us are never going to be able to experience. And we get to give that to everyone else and all these performers are performing for cis people all the time and giving them big, massive amounts of empathy and enlightenment and everything like that. But it's just nice for them to be able to like do that for their own community, you know, that you're, you're looking after your own people rather than looking after, rather than trying to convince other people of your humani- humanity you know, like every time I'm on stage at a stand-up gig, there's 10% of the audience, arms folded, convinced that they're not going to like a queer person or a trans woman or whatever. All they've ever heard is, you know, groomers and, you know, getting into women's bathrooms and stuff like that. And I'm putting all my love into that audience and as much jokes as I can that after a 10-minute set, they're like, oh, okay, maybe these trans people aren't so bad, but to be able to do that work for someone who already loves you and is already part of your community is just a totally different experience rather than trying to, like, convince people that you deserve love. And everyone needs their own space. Yeah. And cis people have their own spaces everywhere. We've got their and own even, planet. Even, it's even a cis planet, people. essentially, isn't it, really? Yeah. and Unfortunately. And- it wasn't, you know? If you look back in history, trans people have been here for thousands thousands of years. We've just been, like, suppressed and erased in the past couple of centuries. But it's nice to be able to kind of, like, bring everyone back to the forefront, you know? But it's it's even different doing all queer gigs because I think a lot of people who are maybe cis and gay or bisexual or lesbian, whatever, they go, like, oh, I've been to an all queer gig. And I get it. But it's different when it's all trans because... I've gone to an old queer gig and had the MC be like, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage. You're like, this isn't a show for me. And I've been to like an old queer gig and been seen the men's and the women's bathrooms and there's no unisex option. And seen lesbians talk about, you know, um, being a vegetarian. I've heard lesbians make jokes like that where it's just like, oh, okay, so your lesbianism is 
all about the genitals and not about the person. Um, so even a cis queer space can be a really exclusionary space for trans people. And I think that'll change over time, but there's just a lot of educating that needs to happen. And I think most trans people don't want to wait until all that educating is done, you know? You'd be like, we can wait a decade for everyone to finally catch up to the facts, or we can just have our own thing now and have that be maybe like a little bit of a vision of the future that we might be able to build. Tell us about the performers who you're showcasing at the Pride Centre. Uh, we've got quite a few. Uh, we were finally, after a lot of work, able to get Kitty Obsidian, who is a fantastic burlesque and drag performer. They do fire breathing. They do all sorts of stuff. And it's just been impossible to get them because they've been so booked. Uh, every time we've done the show, they're just like, I can't. I'm in another state. I'm touring. I'm doing this speech somewhere. It's just been impossible to not lock them down. Uh, I've got one, a couple of my favourite comedians, uh, Han Arbuthnot, uh, who's a trans mass comedian, and they just did their first ever solo show at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, and they were sold out every single night, which was absolutely incredible to see. Uh, we've got uh, a poet, which we haven't had a lot of poetry before, but we've got uh, Kurt Plimbert coming, which is going to be very exciting. Uh, Bilial Bazaar, who I'm really excited about, who is a drag performer who has been associated with a lot of these drag story time events that have been cancelled and stuff like that, uh, and has been receiving a lot of like death threats and hate mail and everything from Nazis and fascists and, you know, going like, okay, why well, get to get that performer and finally give them the audience to deserve, you know, it's just like you know, uh, the good soldier who's been out there fighting on the front lines more than any of us and, like, great, we can come and, like, give them an audience that they don't have to be fighting against, you know, and give them a show that's not going to be cancelled because they've had so many cancelled gigs. It's just, uh, yeah, it's it's an insane lineup. We're, we're announcing new people almost every day on Instagram. Uh, I, I'm also really excited because we've got a gender-diverse choir, a trans oh, wow. choir who's going to be performing on Lovely. the Thursday night. So I think that's about 12 or 14 trans people. And I'm just like, I've never seen that on stage. I've never seen that many trans people on one stage performing together. And I can't imagine what that's going to feel like uh, for, for me, for them, for everyone in the room. It's, yeah, every night is going to be really special and unique. And we do have a lot of people when we do these shows, they book just one night thinking that'll be enough. And then they come back the next night, the next night, they buy new tickets straight away just because it's such a different experience from everything else that we get to experience that they have to get as much of it as they can before it disappears again because we don't do it that often. What's well, happening June 8 to 10 at the Victorian Pride Centre kicks off at 7.30. It's called T4T, a transgender showcase. Anna Piper-Scott, thank you so much for joining me on 3CR today. Thanks for having me. Funny how a lonely day can make a person sane what good is my life? Funny how a breaking heart can make me start to say, What good is my life? Funny how I often seem to think I'll find another dream in my life. Till I look around and see this great big world. And my life This is my life Today, tomorrow, love will come and find me oh, That's the way that I was born to be This is me Afraid, I think of what a mess I've made of my life. Crying over my mistakes, forgetting all the breaks I've had in my life. I was put on earth to be a part of this great world, it's me and my. 
Shelly Bassey there you are and in your face on 3CR with James. Up soon, author Danielle Scrimshaw to chat about her book, She and Her Pretty Friend, which looks at the erased uh, history of queer women in Australia. Here's Christina Aguilera. <laughs> After all you put me through. You think I despise you, but in the end, I want to thank you, because you made me that much stronger. Well, I thought I knew you, thinking that you were true, I guess I...
Listening to Radical Radio 3CR. And here's ACDC. Great Bond, Scott Bear, Uproar Surge, she and her pretty friend, author Danielle Scrimshaw, are looking at the erased history of queer women in this country. But in the meantime, here's Patty Smith. Sister 
electric whirlwind The sea rushes of my knees like flame And I feel like just some misplaced Joan of Arc In the cars as you looking up at me Oh baby, I remember when you were born It was dawn and the storm settled in my belly In the road, in the grass, in the spirit of the gas In the litter in the void wind flash in the sky split and the planets hit bows of jade dropped in existence stop 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 little sister the sky is falling I don't mind I don't mind little sister for you I knew your youth was for the taking fire on the metal plane so I ran through the fields as the bats with their baby vein faces burst from the barn in flames in the violet violent sky and I fell on my knees and pressed you against me your skull was like a network of spittle like glass balls moving in like cold streams of logic and I prayed as that lightning attack that some will make it go crack 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 The palm trees fall into the sea It doesn't matter much to me As long as you're safe Just 
to have Danielle Scrimshaw in the studio who is the author of She and Her Pretty Friend which looks at the erased queer women's history in this country. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It is so exciting. Happy birthday. Thank you. It is my birthday. <gasps> Look, it's a great book. Let's start with the convict history you uncovered. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the convicts are very fun. Lots of riots and violence and women sneaking into each other's beds. A um, lot of activity in Van Diemen's Land, Tasmania. Just, there was like a flash mob in the 1840s that Ho, like Hobart was reporting on a lot. Just all these women causing havoc and um, giving giving the other, like the more innocent um, convicts something to like kind of seduce them in. It kind of, the newspapers reported on them as if they were like a lesbian cult. Lots of like gothic language, which I found very funny. And they were, the flash mob was supposedly... Led by these two women called Catherine Owens and Ellen Scott. It's like something out of a like a, a punk band, almost. Yeah, you know, yeah. Flash Forward, a couple of hundred years, the Flash Mob. I just <laughs> exactly, love it. Exactly. Yeah. But look, you know, there's also the voiceless convict women mm. as well, um, and just the fact that you know women were defined by their their badness and then kind of vanished. Yes. Yeah. It's exactly, especially like if you think about the convicts, a lot of a lot of them came from like uneducated backgrounds in England, so they couldn't read or write. And the women who could read and write had their letters taken away from them from the authorities. So they don't really have any documentation other than the criminal record. And then once they were freed and weren't convicts anymore, then they just kind of disappeared and weren't and aren't in the archive anymore. So we don't know what happened to them, like a lot of ordinary women of the time, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, we don't know what happened to Catherine Owens and Alan Scott. We know what happened to women by those names, but we don't know if it was them. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So I tried I tried um, looking for them on Trove, which is like a source of digitised newspaper articles, and I just put in their names, and a few articles came up. But I was I couldn't be sure if they were like if it was the Ellen Scott or the Catherine Owens, because some of these articles from like were from like Perth or Sydney. So I'm just like, is it possible that they could have moved from Tasmania after they were freed, or is it just someone else? Because I suppose I think it was um, Ellen Scott who I looked up, and I did see that there was like two other convict women called Ellen Scott. So like, who knows? It could be just totally other women. Another section of the book I found fascinating mm. was the bar scene of the yes. 1950s and 60s. Tell us about that. What did you uncover? Yes, the, the 50s and 60s are a really fun period, especially because that's kind of when um, the the queer movement is starting to like come out slowly. Um, the 50s were still pretty uh, censored in, in that way, so it was more private. But um, Val Eastwood, a, an open lesbian who kind of worked in the theatre growing up, she opened a coffee lounge on Swanston Street in Melbourne and um, had all these queer men and women coming in, um, lots of theatre goers as well from her prior community. So, yeah, it was very lavish, very um, very high camp, I suppose. And then later there was like um, – so it went on to – there was like cafes, coffee lounges, bars, and then going into the 70s there was more like um, weekly dances and, and clubs – did you ever – did you have a chance to talk to any of the women from, from that era, from those eras? Um, I spoke to – I spoke to Jude from the 70s. I can't – The wonderful her, Jude Munro. Yes, Jude Munro. Thank you for – thank you for um, giving me the, 
the last the last name because I totally blanked there. Yeah, she's lovely, and um, I think she was the chair for the Pride Center Absolutely. when back in the when it was um, being established. She was great. She told me how she um, was out on the corner of Flinders Street um, handing out leaflets in the seventies, trying to trying to um, kind of turn the turn the conversation around and get people to realize that homosexuality isn't as bad as they originally thought. And um, I spoke to a couple of women who went to the 1983 Pine Gap protest, um, which was like a two-week women's-only protest at Pine Gap, um, protesting like nuclear war and um, the military movement at the time. But these women kind of just went because they heard that all these other women were going so they wanted to go and see if there was any more lesbians in the crowd. And that was a great period of activism. Yeah. Um, this, this theme of the, you know, the criminality of queerness, the, the criminality of queer women, that's something that keeps popping up. Mm. And it's not necessarily that they went out of their way to be criminals, but they were criminalised so often. Yeah, exactly. And um, lesbianism was never actually criminalised in Australia or elsewhere in the British colonies, I don't think. But... Um, the authorities made it very hard to be out as a queer woman or even just to show those um, behaviours and everything because you would still get arrested for, like, indecent behaviour or exactly. per- perversion, that sort of thing. So you were, your behaviour was policed as well as, like, so- like, socially you couldn't... It was still dangerous to be out because you could lose your your job or your house or all of that, you could be disowned from your family. so Which even happens at Mardi Gras, their names and addresses and occupations. Yes, yeah, that's right. Were it, they, they were published in the papers. Herald. Yeah, so a lot of people just lost their jobs or were kicked out because of that, which is awful. And, yeah, reading about those people, I was, just, I was so struck by how brave it would have been to, to come out and have your name, like, be on, be on television and everything at the time because you there was so much... There was so much um, to risk, even if you weren't going to get arrested and put in jail. There was still so much social risk. 1970 saw a pivotal moment for lesbian visibility in Australia. Your book talks about that. It's when Phyllis Pappas and Francesca Curtis did that ABC television interview. Tell us about that. Yeah, that they're um they're great. I again I'm blanking, so I can't. I think it was like, is it to is it today? Today tonight. Today I think tonight. It was. Yes. Yeah. So they were the first lesbian couple on Australian. TV to come out and they were just discussing their sexuality and their relationship and basically they wanted to emphasize that it was a very normal thing for them and there was no reason they thought that to hide or to suppress their identity so it was very radical for them to be on TV for a lot of especially back in the 70s there was only like so many channels to watch so people were watching um, one one of the same thing um, People pretty much watch the same things. Yeah, yeah. So, um, it, yeah, it wasn't like if you if it happened today, like lots, of, you could just flick through the channels if you don't want to watch it. But like back in the seventies, like that was you, can't, it was unavoidable. So it was a very brave act. Yeah, and it was the it was the first you know out moment of lesbian visibility in terms of a television interview, mm. um, and it really saw the birth of an organisation called the Australian Lesbian Movement as well. Tell us about that. Yeah, yeah. So the Australian Lesbian Movement only I think it only lasted about maybe two or three years. So it did fizzle out, but I think it fizzled out because of other groups were coming into motion and everything but um they were they were great as a starting point so a lot of a lot of women joined up and they met at at other members houses um they had a newsletter I I recall and I think they I feel like from memory I think they had a an age limit even to join up I think you had to be like 21 or you had um written permission which is a bit I think they would have had their privacy they would have had privacy in mind, I suppose, with all like the the risk at the time to be in a membership, like in an organisation like that. But yeah, they were really great, and they led on to other other groups like the radical lesbians later in the seventies. I mean, you've unearthed so much of Australia's queer women's history, and it sounds like you were really surprised when you came out in two thousand and seventeen mm. that there wasn't this literature there, mm. uh, and so you created it. Yeah, yeah. So I was at university and I basically, I was studying history. I came out and so naturally I was like, oh, I'll have a look at what queer history in Australia there is. 
and there there's a lot there's a lot of written documentation but it's just kind of everywhere and you have to um really know where you're looking and have the resources to actually hunt down that information, which I had because I was at university. So I had, um, I could get through like the journal subscriptions and everything, get through the payroll and have access to these outdated, like out of print books from the eighties. But um, yeah, so I was just wondering why there wasn't this one book where like a, like an introduction to queer history or something. And what's the answer to that? Why wasn't there? I don't, I'm not sure. I feel like someone else, um, being in the 2020s, I thought someone else would have written it by now. The only one that I found that was um, that this is like speaking of a book that was purely about um, like women's queer history, because I found that a lot of um, books about queer Australia focused heavily on men and there would be like one chapter about lesbians or they would just kind of be filtered throughout. So I wanted um, a book just about women's history and in my research, I found Rebecca Jennings wrote a history called Unnamed Desires, and that was about Sydney's history um, in the 20th century. So that was that's a really great book. But other than that, there wasn't much out there for Australia. Which chapter surprised you the most? Which one had the most surprises? Tell us about that. Um, I think the I think the Pine Gap one surprised me the most, just because I hadn't heard of that protest before. And as I said, it only went for two weeks. So um, it had a lot of uh, publicity to begin with, all, with all the journalists flying into Alice Springs and everything. But then it kind of filtered out. I think what surprised me the most was just all of these women were happy to admit that they went there not for the politics, but just to find other women like themselves. And a lot of women kind of like, under, they, they came back to their, like the like to Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane with like a, a deeper understanding of who they are because they were surrounded by all these women who, even if they weren't gay, they, they shared different like political thought or something or they were more like tolerant to queer women. So a lot of people came back. It was kind of like a coming of age, I suppose, because like these women that I spoke to were only in their 20s. And one woman, Madge, she um, rode her motorbike from Sydney to Pine Gap, which I thought was very cool. What was the most emotional history chapter to write? Oh, that's um, that's very difficult. I think like a lot of them are emotional because you're reading about these women who lived together um, for decades, really, and are buried together. So I found that very touching. Um, there's this couple in Brisbane, Lillian Cooper and Josephine Bedford, they were together for about 60-odd years. They migrated from England in their 20s and they lived in Brisbane right up until they died. They were in Brisbane just for years and years. And Lillian was the was um, Queensland's first female doctor and surgeon and Josephine helped establish um, the playground movement, the public playground movement in Queensland, which is very cool. And yeah, they were together until Lillian died in, I can't remember the exact date, but I think it was the 1940s in her, she was in her eighties and then Josephine died shortly afterwards. So they're buried together. And I found that quite moving just because it's, it's very romantic and very sweet. You must feel really honoured to have written this book, to have um, got to know these people who have disappeared so well. What a beautiful experience for you. Yeah, yeah, it was really great. Like, just, I, I, I became just, like, very attached and um, a little bit fixated on all of these women. And um, my, my own loved ones would just hear about them all the time because I'd be like, oh, I found this great fact or something like found like very like small information about any of them and they were just like oh this is not that interesting is it I'm just like yeah it's fascinating because they're quite like they're ordinary women in one way but they're just like incredible to me so yeah who was the most kind of you know flamboyant character you encountered (laughs) I think um oh I was gonna say some of the women in like the 50s to 70s were very out and flamboyant, like Val Eastwood, who did the coffee lounge, and also um, Dawn O'Donnell in Sydney, who did um, um, some of Sydney's first queer venues. They were great characters. But also, um, thinking back to like the eighteen nineties, there I had a, I have a chapter on a woman called Gussie Freudenberg, and she was she was like a performer. She was in the theatre, 
And she's just she's written about from this man, William Chidley, who um, Gussie is having Gussie is having an affair with his partner. So just the way that Chidley writes about her is just quite it's quite amusing. It's also a bit sad because he just like treat he writes as if she's just like a predator or like um this woman with this german woman with like ugly teeth but um she's just like parading around adelaide and melbourne and everything and just kind of like seducing ballet girls so which i thought was um good for her like really yeah why why wouldn't you it is a great book. She and her pretty friend. It's published by Ultimo Press. Danielle Scrimshaw, the author, thank you so much for popping thank in. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And we'll catch you next week on In Your Face. In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook.